0: Hello again and welcome to another episode of the Ominous Origins Podcast with me, Casey. Of course, this episode is still brought to you by the wonderful people over at MorbidlyBeautiful.com. Morbidly Beautiful is your one-stop shop for all things horror content related, from interviews, reviews, top ten lists, and of course everything in between. Last week, we took a look at Dr. Samuel Shepard, who was accused of brutally murdering his wife in their lakeside house in the nineteen. 50s when we left off he was indeed incarcerated and he had just injected himself with cancer cells for research whatever that was supposed to accomplish i don't know but his life had literally fallen apart around him his wife was murdered he was potentially wrongfully committed he maintained his innocence throughout everything and basically his entire family except for his child died so this is a man with not much left to live for But did he actually kill his wife? Well, we'll get to that. And there's a few twists and turns and unexpected things happening all throughout this, so buckle up, because this is a weird one. As we finish off, Dr. Samuel Shepard. Ominous. Ominous. It is an adjective. Sounds like someone breathing. Oh, After Shepard was sent to jail and was doing his time, his attorney, William Corrigan, spent six years making appeals, but they were all rejected. However, on July 30th, 1961, Corrigan died and F. Lee Bailey took over as Shepard's chief counsel. Eventually, Bailey's petition for a right of habeas corpus was granted on July 15, 1964 by a United States District Court judge who called the 1954 trial a mockery of justice. That is a direct quote from Superman. No, also this case, but it's very poetic and very epic to say such a thing, especially from a judge back in the 1960s. Anyway, getting ahead of myself, off topic, all that sort of stuff. The judge also declared that the trial shredded Shepard's 14th Amendment right to due process. You know because it was a media circus and the trial of public opinion really took over in this one as well way back before the internet was even just a sparkle in somebody's eye the state of ohio was ordered to release Shepard on bond and give the prosecutor 60 days to bring charges against him otherwise the case would be dismissed permanently the state of ohio appealed the ruling of the u.s court appeals for the sixth circuit which on march 4, 1965 reversed the federal judge's ruling Bailey appealed to the U.S. Supreme Court, which agreed to hear the case in Shepard v. Maxwell. On June 6, 1966, six six six, 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 all these sixes, wow, what a date. The Supreme Court, on that date, by an 8-1 to vote struck down the murder conviction. The decision noted, among other factors, that the carnival atmosphere, from the media, had permeated the trial, and that the trial judge Edward J. Blython who died in 1958, was biased against Shepard because Blythin had refused to sequester the jury. He also did not order the jury to ignore and disregard any media reports on the case, which is a no-no in general law. And when speaking to newspaper columnist Dorothy Killigan shortly before the trial started, he said, well, he's guilty as hell, there's no question about that. Why that didn't come up in my earlier research, I don't know, I'm sorry, I missed that, but that's fucked up. I don't know if there's a way to disbar judges, but when he said that, that should have been the case. He should have been not allowed to try any case ever because he just simply didn't like the guy for some reason. Shepard ultimately served 10 years of his sentence. Three days after his 1964 release, he married Arianne Tebenjohannes. Johannes. Tebenj- I don't know how to say this name. I apologize. She was a German divorcee who had corresponded with him during his imprisonment. That's weird. That happens a lot. Women getting attracted to men who are convicted of murder only to have them released and they get married or they get married while they're in jail, in prison, waiting death row. I don't know. It's just a strange phenomenon to me. The two had been engaged since January 1963. Ariane endured her own bit of controversy shortly after the engagement had been announced, confirming that her half-sister Magda, the wife of Nazi propaganda chief Joseph Goebbels. So there's that, which is a thing. Jesus, this guy's just surrounded by all sorts of different weird, crazy stuff. Ariane emphasized that she had no Nazi views, however, and on October 7th, 1969, Shepard and Arianne divorced. That was a long-lived marriage. Well, at least she didn't die, so there's that. Oh, that's a terrible thing to say. Anyway, There was a retrial, and the jury selection began on January 24, 1966, and opening statements began eight days later. Media interest in the trial remained high, but this jury was indeed sequestered this time. The prosecutor presented essentially the same case as was presented 12 years prior. Bailey aggressively sought to discredit each prosecution's witness through very aggressive cross-examination. When coroner Samuel Gerber testified about the murder weapon, which he described as a quote, surgical weapon, Bailey led Gerber to admit that they never found a murder weapon and had nothing to tie Shepard to the murderer. In his closing argument, Bailey scathingly dismissed the prosecution's case against Shepherd as 10 pounds of hogwash in a five pound bag. I'm going to use that more often. That is a great saying. Now, unlike the original trial, neither Shepard nor Susan Hayes took the stand, a strategy that proved to be successful. After deliberating for 12 hours, the jury returned on November 16th with a not guilty verdict. The trial was important to Bailey's rise to prominence among American criminal defense lawyers. It was during this trial that Paul Kirk presented blood spatter evidence he collected in Shepard's home in 1955 that suggested the murder was left handed. And Shepard was, of course, right handed which proved crucial to his acquittal. Three weeks after the trial, Shepard appeared as a guest on the December 7th episode of The Tonight Show, starring Jimmy Carson. After his acquittal, Shepard worked as a ghostwriter with Bill Levy to write the book Endure and Conquer, which presented his side of the case and discussed his years in prison. Levy felt conflicted about collaborating with Shepard because of his belief that Shepard had actually committed the crime. That's... Got to be a little bit of a conflict of interest, but hey, whatever. Now, here's where things get a little weird. Shepard's friend and soon-to-be father-in-law, a professional wrestler by the name of George Strickland, introduced him to wrestling and then eventually trained him for it. It's like the Heart Foundation for potential murderers. It was around this time that Dr. Sam Shepard debuted his wrestling career, and that was in August of 1969 at the age of 45 as, oh my god, I'm not making this up, killer Sam Shepard. He wrestled Wild Bill Shoal. I mean, that's... I was rooting for this guy up until I read that earlier, and I was just like, that's basically O.J. Simpson and his book. If I did it, but it's like I did it in huge writing, or whatever the title of that thing was called. That's crazy. I mean, obviously, it's for marketing, and it worked because he wrestled over 40 matches before his death in April of 1970. And his notoriety because of the case featuring the murder of his wife made him a very strong draw and popular amongst fans. I mean, he did still put his doctoring knowledge to good use, as Shepard used his anatomical knowledge to develop a new submission hold called the Mandible Claw. Yeah, anybody who's familiar with wrestling in the 90s knows that name. It was popularized by professional wrestler Mankind in 1996. Who would have thought that that was a real thing that could actually, like, down somebody? I mean, he used anatomical knowledge to develop this submission hold, so I wonder how legit it actually is. I mean, somebody shoving their fingers down your throat isn't going to be a good feeling, but hey, maybe it's real, and you can actually, like, knock somebody out that way. But before he became a professional wrestler, after his release from prison, Shepard opened a medical office in the Columbus suburb of Gahanna, Ohio, On May 10th, 1968, Shepard was granted a surgical privilege at the Youngstown Osteopathic Hospital. But his, quote, but his skills as a surgeon had deteriorated, and much of the time was impaired by alcohol. So he was a drunk when he got out of prison, which again, I kind of understand. Yeah, anyway. Less than a week after he was granted his privileges, he performed a dissectomy on a woman and accidentally cut an artery. The patient ultimately died the next day. On August 6th, he nicked the right iliac artery of a 29-year-old patient who bled to death internally. Shepard resigned from the hospital staff a few months later after wrongful death suits had been filed by the patient's families, which again, understandable. Six months before his death, Shepard married Colleen Strickland. Towards the end of his life, Shepard was reportedly drinking as much as two-fifths of liquor a day, or 1.5 liters. On April 6, 1970, Shepard was found dead in his home in Columbus, Ohio. Early reports indicated that Shepard died of liver failure, surprise, surprise. The official cause of death was Wernicke encephalopathy, a type of brain damage associated with advanced alcoholism. Now, you think that'd be the end of it, right? The guy's dead. Yeah, his wife's murder is unsolved, but it's been a long time since it happened, but no. No, Shepard's body was remained buried until September 1997, when he was exhumed for DNA testing as part of a lawsuit brought by his son to clear his father's name. The DNA testing absolved Shepard of the murder. After the tests, the body was cremated and the ashes were interned in a mausoleum at Knollwood Cemetery in Mayfield Heights, Ohio, along with those of his murdered wife, Marilyn. So that does it, Right he's exonerated. He didn't do it. Absolved of the murder. Well, of course, that is going to bring some more controversy because his son, Samuel Reese Shepard, had devoted a considerable amount of time and effort towards attempting to clear his father's reputation, and that culminated in a civil trial for wrongful imprisonment. In 1999, Alan Davis, a longtime friend of Shepard and administrator of the estate, sued the estate of Ohio in the Cuyahoga County Court of Common Pleas for Shepherd's wrongful imprisonment, that is a mouthful. Kuahuka It's a great name though, and I'm probably saying it wrong, I'm sorry if I am. By order of the court, Marilyn Shepherd's body was exhumed, and in part to determine if the fetus she was carrying had been fathered by Shepherd. Terry Gilbert, an attorney retained by the Shepard family, told the media that, quote, the fetus in this case had previously been autopsied and that's a fact that had never been disclosed publicly before. This, Gilbert argued, raised questions about the coroner's office in the original case, possibly concealing pertinent evidence. Due to the passage of time on the fetus's tissue, however, paternity could not be established. Now, for the first time in, what are we looking at, 35 plus 40 years, we have another suspect. And during the civil trial, plaintiff attorney Harry Gilbert, contended that Richard Eberling, an occasional handyman and window washer at the Shepherd's home, was the likeliest suspect in Marilyn's murder. Eberling found Marilyn attractive and he was very familiar with the layout of the Shepherd's home. In 1959, detectives were questioning Richard Eberling about various burglaries in the area and Eberling confessed to the burglaries and showed the detectives his loot, which included two rings that belonged to Marilyn Shepherd. Eberling stole the rings in 1958 A few years after the murder from Sam Shepard's brother's house, he had taken a box marked Personal Property of Marilyn Shepard. In subsequent questioning, Eberling admitted his blood was at the crime scene of Marilyn Shepard. He stated that he cut his finger while washing the windows just prior to the murder and bled while on the premises, a likely story. As part of the investigation, Eberling took a polygraph test with questions about Marilyn's murder. The polygraph examiner concluded that Eberling did not show any deception in his answers, although the polygraph results were evaluated by other experts years later who found it was either inconclusive or Eberling was indeed deceptive. In his testimony in the 2000 civil lawsuit, Bailey stated that he rejected Eberling as a suspect in 1966 because, quote, I thought he passed a good polygraph test. And when it was presented to Bailey that an independent polygraph expert said Eberling had either murdered Marilyn or had knowledge of who did, Bailey stated that he probably would have presented Eberling as a suspect in the 1966 retrial. And that's why you don't trust polygraph tests. They're unreliable. DNA evidence, which was obviously not available in the two murder trials, played an important role in the civil trial. DNA analysis of the blood at the crime scene showed that there was a presence of blood from a third person, other than... Marilyn and Dr. Shepard. With regard to tying the blood to Eberling, the DNA analysis that was allowed to be admitted to the trial was inconclusive. A plaintiff DNA expert was 90% confident, however, that one of the blood spots belonged to Richard Eberling, but according to the rules of the court, this was not admissible. The defense argued that the blood evidence had been tainted in the years since it was collected and that an important blood spot on the closet door in Marilyn Shepard's room potentially included 83% of the adult white population. The defense also pointed out that the results in 1955 from the older blood typing technique that the blood collected from the closet door was type O while Eberling's blood was type A. Throughout his life, Richard Eberling was associated with women who had suspicious deaths and was convicted of murdering Ethel May Durkin, a wealthy elderly widow who died without any immediate family. Durkin's 1984 murder in Lakewood, Ohio was uncovered when a court-appointed review of the woman's estate revealed that Eberling, Durkin's guardian and executor, had failed to execute her final wishes, which included stipulations on her burial. However, that's a little bit of hearsay, there's not a whole lot of citations or research really available for that, that's just kinda something i found. Although Eberling denied any criminal involvement in the murder of Marilyn Shepard, Kathy Wagner Dial, who worked alongside Eberling in caring for Ethel May Dunkard, also testified that Eberling had confessed to her in 1983. A fellow convict also reported that Eberling confessed to the crime. The defense called into question the credibility of both witnesses during the 2000 trial. Eberling did eventually die in an Ohio prison in 1998 where he was serving a life sentence for the murder of Durkin. So what was the outcome of all this? Was it worth any time and all the effort placed forward on the judicial system and the people involved? Well, after 10 weeks of trial, 76 witnesses and hundreds of exhibits, the case went to an eight-person civil jury. The jury deliberated just three hours on April 12, 2000 before returning a unanimous verdict that Samuel Rhys Shepard had failed to prove by a preponderance of the evidence that his father had been wrongfully imprisoned. So in short, no, the verdict was not overturned. Oh well, he was exonerated well before that anyway due to DNA evidence, so yeah, anyway. There is one other suspect but he's not really worth getting into, but I'll mention it anyway. There was a book in 2002 that theorized that Marilyn Shepard was murdered by James Call, an Air Force deserter who was passing through Cleveland on a multi-state crime spree at the relevant time. Some pages in this book show multiple comparative photographs of Major Call's Luger pistol with the bloodstained pillowcase of Marilyn Shepard. During the original trial, the bloodstain patterns were suspected of having been made by a surgical instrument, which F. Lee Bradley disproved during the 1966 retrial. So there you have it, another unsolved murder, and at least this guy got off this time, when he probably didn't do it, and if you believe the DNA evidence in 1997, then yeah, he was absolved of the murder. So good for him. However, he did have to go through some hardships and ultimately died due to those hardships because of the alcoholism that, well, obviously prison and being wrongfully accused of killing your wife would bring on. So that's all I got for you this week. So until next time, my name is Casey and this has been the Ominous Origins Podcast. If you like what you heard, please feel free to leave a five-star rating on Spotify. If you do, send me a message somewhere, anywhere you can find me, and I'll let everybody know that you were awesome enough to leave that rating. Great little shout out. You can still do the same thing on iTunes or Apple Podcasts if you'd like, and if you want to follow me on social media, you can do so at the following. On Facebook at Horror Shots, on Twitter at Horror Shots Prod is in production, or on Instagram at Ominous Origins Pod. So until next time.